Our public reading of Holy Scripture and our our sermon text is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. I'd invite you to turn with me to uh, that passage in your Bibles, whether you you brought one along with you or you have our NIV Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we once again come before you in the anticipation of your ministry of the word to speak to us as your people. I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts and ears and minds to receive what it is that you have to say by whatever means it comes, including Pastor Yuri's preaching this morning. We pray, Lord, that you give him freedom and give him boldness, give him conviction, give him gentleness, give him a shepherd's care, and allow us to hear from you, the great shepherd, straight from your heart. Lord, we thank you for all the ways that you have provided for Bethesda Church over these 80 years, and we continue to look to you to do so for our future. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us here this morning, especially as it relates to our future with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, officially, good morning to you. It was a challenging week in many ways. At the same time, it was a thrilling week in many ways for me. I was incredibly humbled and honored on Wednesday at the annual general meeting to be affirmed as uh, your next senior pastor, so I'm senior pastor designate this morning. And this morning, once again, we're going to be looking at some of the vision that we talked about last week that that I introduced last Sunday. That vision was inspired by the whole book of Hebrews. And as I said last week, today, and for two more sermons after today, I'll be fleshing out that vision and the three-year plan that I've proposed for Bethesda. But this morning, through the lens of one short passage, 
from Hebrews. We'll be casting our eyes far into the past and also into the future as we consider what I called last week my internal operational priorities. The first two, accountability and fiscal responsibility. These are goals that are achievable only to the degree that those of us attending Bethesda who are submitted to Christ also submit ourselves to becoming members of this church, which would in turn foster an environment in which we would take better care of one another and inspire more of us to take better care of our building, and our other resources. Along the way, I'm going to offer my thoughts on why following something as abstract and dry as a constitution is so important. Now, if all that sounds kind of dull to you, rest assured it won't be done in a direct or exclusive way. Um, I don't think that's a bad way to do it. It's just not really my style. So even if you don't attend Bethesda regularly, you'll find something to be challenged by and to ponder. Well, if you missed last week's sermon, I'd encourage you to download and to listen to it on the audio online archive that Dan McCrure has faithfully maintained for years. That's at BethesdaSermonAudio.ca. BethesdaSermonAudio.ca. And it's been a while since I've specifically mentioned this excellent archive. But I'm bringing it up today because last week we had difficulties with the audio on our live stream. But the sound on this audio archive is always excellent. So I thought I should remind those of you who already knew about it uh, that it's there. And make those of you who don't yet know about it aware of it, that you can always go back and listen to uh, old sermons on BethesdaSermonAudio.ca. But I also just want to give a big thank you to Dan, um, who does so much for us every Sunday, week in and week out. And really, there are so many others of you who give yourselves selflessly to the work that goes on here at Bethesda, as well as to the relationships that you formed here. And I want to thank all of you who are dedicated to this work and to this gathering, whether you're a paid staff member or or you give freely of your time, whether you are officially a member of Bethesda Church or you have preferred up to this point to call Bethesda home without formalizing your relationship to this community. And to those of you who are not yet members... I know and you know that becoming a member wouldn't mean that you care any more about the people here, or even that you would necessarily become more committed than you were before. You know and I know that you can enjoy the benefits of the relationships here and determine to remain steadfast whatever challenges may come without any sort of formal membership process. It's the same kind of thing with common-law couples. Many go through their whole lives together enjoying all the delights of marriage and persevering through all the stresses of marriage without ever having some stuffy ceremony or spending money on a big party full of people that they feel like they have to invite. And most common-law couples will argue that signing some piece of paper won't make them any more or less likely to stay together. As I say, that is a similar argument to not becoming a member of a church. 
Oftentimes, those who don't believe in the institution of marriage come to that conclusion based on the misery that they've seen married couples endure and the high rate of divorce. Likewise, many Christians are reluctant to take the plunge with the church they've attended for decades because they've seen too many people get hurt and too many churches splinter. Haunted by the specter of that kind of trouble and perhaps even by their own personal bad experiences, not becoming a member can ironically help some people feel able to find their church home and stay there. Because they don't see themselves as being forced, they feel free, and that freedom allows them to plant and grow roots, and they are just as much a member of Christ as any member of a church. But if that's true, what's the point of the whole church membership thing? Why would I bother to preach even a single sermon about church membership, let alone have it define my pastoral vision for Bethesda? To answer that question, I'm going to invite you to look back. To imagine a time that most of us don't think about very often. I want you to close your eyes and imagine yourself sitting on this very spot on the planet. As someone who would have been living on this land about 200 years ago. If you were on this land, you would probably have been a Métis hunter, trapper, farmer. And you'd be sitting right on the property line right now. On the back edge of a long, skinny plot of land that stretched east from here all the way to the bank of the Red River. You likely used to trap for the Northwest Company. And the events of the recent past would still be leaving a bitter taste in your mouth. You'd clearly remember the arrival of those Scottish refugees, starving and poor, how you had pity on them and helped them when they had nothing to eat, how they then built a rival fort and closed their river lots to you up in Frog Plain, renaming it Kildonan after the county they'd left. How after pushing you off your hunting grounds, they stole your food and banned you from selling it. How you then took it back and in their arrogance, they picked a fight with you up at Seven Oaks and so you had to show them who was boss around these parts. How they then and their Hudson's Bay Company somehow took it all over leaving you without a job. But at least you got this piece of land. That was not insignificant. You belonged to the land. And you probably didn't think much about how these Highland Scots belonged. But they belonged to each other. They belonged to their God. They had once belonged to the land too, just like you back in Kildonan. For hundreds of years, they farmed the common land that they rented from their local lord before the lords got enlightened. 
and took it into their heads that they could make a lot more money off the land if the highlanders were no longer on it. The lords thought they could improve the land, which gradually came to mean not just in Scotland but all over the world, thinking of the earth and of the people on it not as a gift to be shared, a commons, not as a group to whom you belonged, but as a resource to be maximized, plundered, squeezed to the last drop. This idea of belonging to one another and to God runs through the entire book of Hebrews. We see it in the very passage that we're studying this morning. I'd invite you to open your Bibles if you've closed them and turn to chapter 3 once again to look at verse 14. Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. That word that we have translated as to share is a word that Hebrews uses a lot. In fact, it's a word that is distinctive to this book since it's not used in very many other places. In fact, it would be closer to the original to translate it into English as a noun, rather than a verb. So here in verse 14, it would be something like, we have become partakers of Christ. Which is how most translations have it, or some version of that. But also, at the, in the original, the word, this word comes at the beginning of the sentence. So it has a strong emphasis, something like, partakers indeed of Christ, we have become. Partakers, indeed, of Christ. But we can't be partakers of Christ. That is, we can't be joined to him without being joined to everyone else who is joined to him. So Christians, by default, belong to one another as well as belonging to Jesus. I am a part of you, and you are a part of me, and we are all a part of him. Partakers of Christ. What else does the book of Hebrews say that believers have in common? We'll skip through very quickly, but so we don't have to turn there, but in chapter 6, verse 4, just as this verse that we're studying today calls us partakers of Christ, there we're called partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers of Christ, partakers of the Holy Spirit. And then back in chapter 3, at the very beginning, it says that we, holy brothers and sisters in Christ, united to him by his spirit, are partakers of a heavenly calling. Partakers of Christ, partakers of the Holy Spirit, partakers of a heavenly calling. And in chapter 12, verse 8, though it's not clear in the NIV, the same word is used to give us a heads up that as God's children, we should expect to become partakers of his discipline. Partakers of Christ, partakers of the Holy Spirit, partakers of a holy calling, partakers of God's 
discipline. In fact, the point of that verse in chapter 12 is that if we do not find ourselves being disciplined by God, then we must not be his true children. And finally, speaking of being God's children, in chapter 2, verse 14... He uses a slightly different form of the same word to introduce the crucial fact that Jesus shared, partook in our humanity. That is, he took on flesh and blood so that he could destroy the devil and free us who were in slavery to our fear of death. We are partakers of Christ, partakers of the Holy Spirit, partakers of a holy calling, partakers of God's discipline, and Jesus partook, shared in our flesh and blood to redeem us from slavery to sin and the fear of death. We're joined to Christ, Hebrews says, and to the Holy Spirit, and so we belong to one another. In Christ, by his spirit. Since we have a holy calling that we share, that holy calling further binds us together. And then drawing us even closer, we share in that experience of being disciplined by God. That is, we are to expect that we will each experience suffering individually and that we will suffer together, as he disciplines us for our good, Hebrews says. Well, that's all well and good, you may say, but so far you're still talking about membership, belonging to one another, mainly as a kind of spiritual reality, not some institutional rite of passage. But just think about those two last examples of discipline and of Jesus sharing in our humanity. The discipline that we experience in our bodies has significance, Hebrews tells us. Affliction is for our good, not because it somehow puts hair on our chests or makes us more thick-skinned, or as some painful rituals do, magically announce your arrival as a man or a woman. No, God disciplines us, chapter 12 tells us, that we may share in his holiness, God's discipline produces, it says, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Chapter 12, verse 11. But even more fundamentally, one of the central concerns of Hebrews is to show that because we are flesh and blood, Jesus needed to share in our flesh and blood in order to save us. He had to be human. He had to die. He had to be God's perfect sacrifice in the flesh in order to be the perfect mediator between God and us. He had to come to earth. He had to bleed out on a cross in order to draw us behind the curtain to meet God in the holy places. In fact, the whole earthly tabernacle, Hebrews emphasizes, was just a copy. Just a copy of the original, an original that is eternally in heaven. These things are hard to wrap our minds around. But the point is that the book of Hebrews makes it clear that there is an undeniable connection 
between what we do in the material world and what that signifies in the spiritual world. How those things are connected or even why they are connected may not be obvious to us. In fact, they usually aren't obvious to us, but that's beside the point. That there is a connection is not in question, at least not if you believe the Bible. Well, the connection between the material and the spiritual worlds that our passage this morning refers to is the connection between the grumbling that expresses our unbelief and God's wrath. Specifically, specifically the grumbling of the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, and that grumbling was an expression of their lack of faith in God's ability to provide for their needs in the desert. But that story is not actually the main point. The point here is that we, we all, have the same tendency not to believe God. Not to trust that God will provide for our needs. Whatever those needs might be. Look at verse 12. He says, See to it, brothers and sisters, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He warns us that sin is deceitful, that it tricks us, in other words. That sin inevitably hardens us toward God. What does he say is the remedy? To encourage one another daily. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. But the word encourage here is not bad as a literal translation, but still it doesn't really mean the sorts of things that we typically think of when we think encouragement nowadays. To put it simply, to encourage one another daily doesn't mean being extra nice to people all the time. As desirable as that is, I'm not knocking being nice, it's just not what Hebrews is talking about here. The first hint that that's not what encourage each other means in this case is the context. When you read that quotation from Psalm 95 that comes before, easygoing positivity isn't exactly the first thing that comes to mind. The last verse he quotes is, I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my my rest. So just be nice. That's not what he's saying. Now sometimes when you're not sure about a word like this, it's helpful to take a quick glance at some of the other translations and paraphrases to help you. They can give a better sense of the range of meaning that's intended by a word. For instance, some of those translations or paraphrases have it this way. We should help each other every day. Help each other every day. And this idea of helping each other is right, since the Greek word is closely related to the one that refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. But help is, I think, still a little too passive for what Hebrews is getting at here. Well, how about the message? That always tends to be a little more colorful and folksy. And it actually gets it pretty close when it says we ought to keep each other on our toes. 
keep each other on our toes. That phrase gives us a a sense of the danger that we read about here, that Hebrews is referring to. But in this case, I think actually the New Living Translation gets it best. It reads, you must warn each other every day. Warn each other every day so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Warn each other every day. That's good. That's really good. Because we need one another to point out our sins. We need one another to point out our sins, to warn us of sin, because we all tend toward unbelief. We are all prone to sin. We're all prone to minimize our unbelief and to minimize the stupefying effects of our sin. It's all too easy for us to become hardened, to develop calluses around our hearts. We're very good at blocking out annoying warning signals. I have one in my car right now. It's dinging incessantly because it thinks there's something wrong in my car and there isn't. So I have to apologize to anybody who rides in my car because of the dinging because I don't notice it anymore. We're very good at blocking out those kinds of warning signals. We're expert at closing our eyes when a mirror is held up to our ugliness. But we're especially skilled at, what we're especially skilled at is just avoiding situations in the first place that will tend to confront us with what we don't want to see or hear. And that's why it's so urgent that we covenant with one another. We should all expect that we will sin and that we will make excuses for it. So in order to keep ourselves from Deluding ourselves, we need to intentionally place people around us who will help us, who will help us every day to see our sin for what it is. Hebrews is talking here about accountability. Hebrews talks a lot about accountability all the way through, from beginning to end, in its conception and in its intention. Hebrews is just one long exercise in accountability. In putting together his sermon and writing it out and sending it as a letter, the preacher of Hebrews is doing exactly what he's telling his readers to do in verses 12 and 13, saying, in effect, I know, I know what you're tempted to do. Don't do it. Here's why you shouldn't do it. Here's why you should persevere. Here is how you should persevere. Warn one another daily. As long as it is called today. So that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The preacher is willing to risk, willing to put himself on the line, his reputation as a kind and reasonable man, his his relationship with his beloved friends in the church. The preacher is willing to risk offending, willing to risk being misunderstood, willing to risk being ignored and disregarded so that he may fulfill what he has covenanted with them as their pastor to do. To warn them not to shrink back. To warn them against sin. To warn them to stop sinning. 
to warn them not to be hardened in their sin. To warn them not to turn away from the living God. To warn them to stop trusting in themselves and in their judgment. To warn them, indeed, to stop judging God. Stop judging God. For that's what's so offensive to God about his people's unbelief. The people in this story presumed to hold God accountable. To tell the living God who created the universe, who upholds everything by the word of his power, how they ought to be treated by him. To use the breath that he put in their lungs to moan and complain against him. The audacity. Chapter 4, verse 13. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We have no business holding God to account for what he does or fails to do. And yet we constantly do it, don't we? In our constant grumbling, we grumble so much that we don't even hear it most of the time. We grumble and complain and we call it praying. And because it doesn't seem to help, we just end by making our own plans and doing our own thing, ignoring what God is calling us, even now, to trust him. Trust him with our time. Trust him with our money. Trust him with our health. Trust him with our relationships. Nah, God, we say with our every plan, our every action, we got this. I don't need you. But we don't got this. No amount of our effort or ingenuity, no amount of our money or our time can do what God means to accomplish through us. A short detour through the gospel story of the widow's offering will help to illustrate what I mean. So I'd invite you to turn back to page 983 in your pew Bibles, Mark 12, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse... 41, page 983. It's right down on the bottom right-hand corner of the page. Mark 12, verses 41. First starting verse 41. Mark writes, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. He's sitting in the temple. Opposite the place where the offerings were put, and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth 
only a fraction of a penny. These two copper coins were half. Each one was worth half of the smallest Roman denomination of currency. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty. She out of her poverty put in everything. All she had to live on. Now why does Jesus draw his disciples' attention to this woman? And commend her actions to them? I mean, there's a cynical way of reading this story, right? Was Jesus actually recommending that people give more to the church than they can afford? Was he implying that little old ladies should forego paying their rent and feeding themselves so that the temple service would be provided for? No, of course not. Jesus was the one who constantly warned and criticized the temple priests, after all. Jesus was not particularly invested in Herod's magnificent monstrosity known as the temple. In fact, right after this episode, in chapter 13, he tells his disciples, who seemed a little too impressed by this big temple, that the temple would soon be destroyed. Jesus is obviously not inducing them or us to give until it hurts to the temple or to the church. Jesus is not being manipulative at all. He's just stating a fact. He says quite plainly that with her two very small copper coins, she had put more into the treasury than all the others. Was Jesus just being sentimental? No. He was saying something that is literally true if you take the spiritual reality of what she was doing into account. If you take the spiritual reality of what she was doing into account, she did indeed put in more than all the others. Remember the connection between the material world and the spiritual world. She faithfully tossed in everything, all she had to live on, because she knew that God was good for it. That in his vast wisdom, he would not only have a purpose for those two coins, but that because of her faith, he would fling open his storehouses so that the good work of building his kingdom would be financed in ways she could never imagine and probably would never see. But she believed, in fact, she knew for certain, simply and contentedly, that he would do something important with it. And she took for granted that he would always provide for everything that she could possibly need. And even if he didn't, she would still happily put her whole life into God's treasury. Jesus' observation didn't have anything to do with the temple or the temple service or the priests. It had to do with her heart, her lavish heart toward God. This is why we need to covenant 
with each other, with little old ladies like the widow. We don't know anything else about that old widow in the story, but we all do know people like her, don't we? We need those people to convict us of our tendency to be obsessed with our security. We need those people to model for us how to stop worrying about our personal needs. We need those people to tell us to start believing that God's bank account is more than sufficient to accomplish his purposes. We need those people to show us that he will supply all our needs according to his riches in glory. We need those people to call us to account for our folly, to warn us against the sin of guarding our hoard of time and treasure. But why church membership? And why, of all things, this legal document known as a constitution, which claims in the first line of the preamble to form part of the basis upon which membership in Bethesda Church derives its meaning? Why all the complicated checks and balances? Can we just trust our best friends to tell us when we're going off the rails? In short, no. No, we can't. And we never have been able to. In informal situations, we all fail to tell our friends what they need to hear. We all do it. And we all fail to hear our friends when they do tell us what we need to hear informally. What a legal document gives us is the stability and the safety of a framework, a framework in which to have difficult conversations, an instrument that acknowledges our tendency to sin, to become deceived and hardened, our tendency to insist that everyone look only at the best of my intentions and to hide our actual failures. A constitution is the means by which we pledge to listen to others, to be willing to be confronted with hard realities. The Bible itself is a covenant document filled with myriads of shorter covenant documents. And many of these smaller frameworks in their initial context did also carry legal force and offered the people a way of interacting with each other in belief and faithfulness to God. A platform from which to warn their loved ones to change what they were doing. To not privilege their personal concerns. And to trust the God who provided all things for them. A constitution calls us out of our lethargy and our complacency because no one, none of us, likes to rock the boat. We all would prefer not to disturb the nice time that we're having, 
even if we're all headed down the drain. As As we begin on this transition, as we look first to the next three years to get ready, to get set, and to go, that is... We're looking mostly at the, at the near future. But really to know where we're going, to, to know what we'll need to effectively encourage, help, warn one another daily as long as it is called today. It's also prudent to look to the far future. Ten years. Twenty-five, fifty years on. Even 100, 200 years on to days we can barely imagine when perhaps the grandkids of our grandkids will be serving in our place, in this place. Alongside who knows who else. I know it seems like a strange thing to even contemplate. But to me the strange thing is that not many people in the church at large are talking about this, this far future. Maybe that's because even the middle future in our world today seems bleak, let alone the far future. But it's not bleak for the church. Not bleak for God and for his purposes. Yes, it will be a hard world for our kids and their kids. Maybe a more violent world. Maybe a hot and dry world as well as a smoky world. A world where people may not live on the average as long as we do now. And where they almost certainly will have less materially than we do now. But for them, as it was for these Scottish Highlanders, Winnipeg will be a comparative haven And like those Red River settlers, while they may have less to eat and drink than we do now, they will still have the overflowing abundance of all of God's riches. Already we find ourselves in the midst of wars and floods and fires. And the story of Winnipeg is intimately connected to the enlightenment that has brought about this dystopia. It was those Scottish lords, after all, convinced of godless enlightenment ideals who burned out and evicted the Highlanders, who had been farming the commons in Kildonan for centuries, and shipped them off to the Red River 200 years ago, where they discovered they weren't very welcome and that there wasn't enough to eat. These Scottish settlers could have despaired, but they didn't. Certainly they sinned, they hoarded, they quarreled, they didn't think much of the people who were here before them, but by and large, they trusted God. They encouraged one another daily, knowing that it was still called today. And God blessed that settlement and this city. And what do we in the church today do to help each other, to warn each other, 
to encourage each other. We're tempted to despair. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to just encourage each other in that non-Hebrews 3.13 sense. To tell one another the sweet little lies that the world tells itself. Things are not as bad as they seem. Technology will ride to the rescue. We don't need to change anything about what we've been doing for the past 200 years. We don't need to reevaluate our unbelief and our self-sufficiency. Maybe the Lord will return. Amen, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if he tarries, what about tomorrow's today? The September issue of Maclean's magazine, you may have seen, challenges us to consider Canada in the year 2060. It's certainly a hard read, but an important one. To survive, to keep doing the work that we're called to, we need Bethesda to covenant together to be here as the body of Christ in this place. To offer the hope of Jesus to the next generation, a generation that is already feeling the despair as they realize the bitter fruit that trusting to their unbelieving hearts and the deceitfulness of sin has brought them. Three-quarters of young Canadians already say that the bleak future they're facing affects their mental health. But we have the only hope that can mean anything in this difficult future that we're facing. And this is the future for which we can and must prepare for now. We need to put in our two copper coins, put our whole lives into God's immense treasury. We need to commit ourselves to be financially stable and to steward this place, trusting that God will open heaven's floodgates so that we can always do what the people of God have forever done in times of plenty and in times of want and crisis. Offer the hope of Jesus. And what of the todays of 2123 or 2223? Again, we could be tempted to despair since we know that it will be a world that is utterly unrecognizable to us. And though it is our hope we should not count on the Lord returning. But still, we must keep encouraging one another. And still, just like those Scottish settlers did, who would be astonished at the city we live in now, we must teach our children that we do not ever have an enduring city here on earth. But we are looking for the city that is to come. Hebrews thirteen fourteen. We do not ever have an enduring city here on earth. But we are looking for the city that is to come. For they will still live 
200 years from now in a world in which the Lord Jesus reigns. A world in which they will still be encouraged or called to encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today. And what we do now, what we do now in our material reality, the covenants we make, like becoming members of our church, to submit ourselves to be held accountable, those commitments to God's glory and our good will determine how or whether this church will Hold firm to the end, as our verse puts it. Whether we will still be ministering to the massive metropolis of Winnipeg in 2223, in a building here that is maybe better appointed and situated to find homes for refugees fleeing famine, fires, and floods. Perhaps it's not too far-fetched to think that little Bethesda Church will still be providing a gospel witness that God will use to bless and to guard our city as we believe and endure. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're not used to thinking Along these lines, we, I oftentimes am just happy to hit the pillow at night. But you call us to have a broader vision, a longer vision. You call us to believe and trust in you day by day, as long as it is called today that you will provide our daily bread, the manna and the quail and the water from the rock. You will be there. You will answer our needs out of your great, vast treasury. Teach us, Lord, what it means to belong to one another and to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As a benediction this morning, I'd like to offer once again Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen and go in peace.